Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. As the impact on US activity of states delaying reopening or reimposing restrictions is starting to show in some real-time data, discussions on a fiscal stimulus still focus on propping up household income now. But is pumping up more pent-up demand the solution? On the monetary policy side, the Fed seems to be thinking hard about yield control. It's Monday, July the 6th. I'm Gilles Moeck, and you're listening to Markcast. The Democrats in the House have passed in May a $3 trillion Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act, nicknamed HEROES, even larger than the ongoing CARES Act, which was at only $2.4 trillion. According to the Congress Budgetary Office, the CBO, the House's project would raise the federal deficit by no less than 8% of GDP in 2020 and 6.7% in 2021. The flagship measure, in the package would be another blanket and conditional check to U.S. households, more generous than the first one, which offered $1,200 per adult plus $500 per child under the age of 17. Since this time, dependents would also get $1,200. A family of four would thus get $4,800 instead of $3,400 in the first round. The second serving of cash transfer is the most frequently discussed item. There is only a fraction of the package, which also legislates for, among many other things, an extension of the federal unemployment top-up by six months, bringing it to the end of January 2021, and student debt relief. The Republican Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, initially reacted to the plan by stating that this was an insurious product from an insurious majority, end of quote. But the second check to households isn't surprisingly popular, though, and President Trump stated last Wednesday that he was contemplating increasing it beyond the Democrats' proposal. In a nutshell, the Eros Act is unlikely to go through the Senate in its current form, but it is however likely that another thick layer of fiscal stimulus will be agreed by the Republicans. The negotiations between the House and the Senate are likely to resume on July the 20th, with a potential conclusion by August the 7th when Congress adjourns. The focus on household income is quite surprising. We've already made the point in Macrocast that while automatic stabilizers tend to be smaller in the US than in Europe, which explains why American policymakers need to implement more discretionary measures, the current carpet bombing is to some extent overkill. In April, gross disposable income rose by a whopping 10.8% month on month. Labor income fell by 7.4%, $1.15 trillion, but this was more than offset by the steep rise in unemployment benefits nearly half a trillion dollars, and other benefits, mainly the first federal check, to the tune of $2.5 trillion. With the impact of the check disappearing, personal income relapsed in May, minus 4.2% month-on-month, but thanks to the generous federal top-up to the employment benefits, it is still 3.8% above the pre-pandemic level of February. While well, it seems that many Americans have slipped through the net and find themselves in a precarious position, aggregate numbers still reflect a very comfortable position. 
While business bankruptcies have started to rise, findings in the Chapter 11 process have hit their highest levels in two years in May 2020, personal bankruptcies in April and May 2020 hit their lowest level since records started in 2006. It is not obvious to understand the logic behind the US fiscal approach so far. This is possibly because the ongoing fiscal stimulus is to some extent the chance result of Democrats on the one hand pushing in the House, combined on the other hand with the effort of Republicans in the White House and the Senate, rather than a carefully crafted, coherent response. In a potential rationalization, the idea might be to pump up such a massive pent-up demand that the US will experience a much faster-than-expected catch-up upon reopening. This would lift animal spirits and provide enough momentum to overcome the negative impact of lingering virus-related uncertainty to propel the economy in a lasting V-shaped recovery. Of course, if the reopening is delayed or muted, such strategy would ultimately be very costly. The federal government will have spent trillions of dollars at the wrong time and will be forced to maintain its emergency support well into the second half of 2020 to get the same effect on annual GDP. We would gladly exchange less emergency support now for more long-haul stimulus later, in particular in the form of public investment, as we argued last week. We might get both, but then the deficits, which are already ballooning, will take another turn for worse. A key issue to gauge the ramifications of the current economic developments in the US for the global economy is how the ongoing relapse will affect President Trump's electoral strategy. Polls are increasingly concerning for his re-election prospects, and historically, the state of the economy, and specifically labor market prospects, has been a very good predictor of the electoral fate of incumbent US presidents. Just like in 2016, President Trump's rhetoric can be assessed along two axes. One is the, so to speak, cultural line, the stance on race relations and immigration. The other is the economic line, for instance, the stance on protectionism. So far, and again very clearly in his speech for the 4th of July, Donald Trump has been much more vocal on the first axis than on the second one. A risk, of course, in terms of market volatility is that this changes as the election looms. Delayed reopening is not just a challenge for fiscal policy. The Fed would be under a lot of pressure to deliver more should the expected V-shaped recovery fail to materialize this summer. The minutes of the June FOMC meeting, released last week, suggest that the US central bank is far from complacent, despite the shock and awe strategy it has already deployed since March. The minutes start with quite a bit of introspection, with two staff briefings on first, the impact of combining quantitative easing with forward guidance, and second, on the pros and cons of shifting to an explicit yield control approach. Interestingly, there was no mention of embarking on a negative policy rate stance, confirming the lack of appetite in the US so far for this approach. Combined forward guidance with QE is a tried and tested strategy for the Fed, but the staff briefing did not convey much confidence on its chances of success in the current configuration. I quote, The simulation suggested that the committee would have to maintain highly accommodative financial conditions for many years to quicken meaningfully the recovery from the current severe downturn. Businesses and households might not be as forward-looking as assumed in the model predictions, which could reduce the effectiveness of policies. End of quote. It is not surprising thus that the Fed seems open to explore alternative solutions and yield curve control, or to be more precise, yields caps or targets, YCT, 
as the staff prefers to call it, is a natural candidate. In the run-of-the-mill QE, the central bank sets an explicit quantum of asset purchases, and the risk-free interest rate across the curve is the result of how this quantum changes the demand and supply equilibrium on the market. In YCT, the central bank sets a target for the market interest rate on one or several points of the yield curve, and the quantum of purchases is whatever is needed to achieve this target. In other words, in YCT, the central bank is no longer in control of the size of its balance sheet. Yield control could be well suited to a situation in which the central bank is up against a limit on its own policy rate and fiscal deficits are ever-expanding. Indeed, if the Fed does not want to contemplate taking Fed funds rates in negative territory, which normally trickles up the yield curve, while the impact of traditional QE on the yield curve is muted since the preset purchase quantum is constantly dwarfed by more sovereign issuance, then direct price intervention across the curve is needed to make sure financial conditions can be loosened further. The briefing to the FOMC, looking into the current Japanese and Australian experiences, as well as the Fed's own YCTs during World War II and afterwards, was cautiously supportive. These three experiences suggested that credible YCT policies can control government bond yields, pass through to private rates, and, in the absence of exit consideration, may not require large central bank purchases of government debt. End of quote. Still, the briefing also highlighted that under YCT policies, I quote, monetary policy goals might come in conflict with public debt management goals, which could pose risks to the independence of the central bank. The reaction of the majority of FOMC members, judging by the minutes, is that as long as the current stance on forward guidance remains credible, there is no compelling reason to move to YCT. It also seems that most minds are open to such eventuality. Such a shift could easily happen, in our view, if the committee were to consider that financial conditions are no longer appropriate. For instance, in a situation in which a worsening of the economic situation in the coming months was not accompanied by a further reduction in long-term interest rates. This week's focus. If there is one data release we need to uh, focus on this week, it will be on Thursday and uh, the new jobless uh, reading. Um, it's very complicated to uh, get a proper sense of what's going on on the uh, US labor market at the moment. We had another positive surprise on the payroll data. Uh, but payroll data was collected before uh, most of the deceleration in US activity uh, was recorded in real-time uh, data that was before a number of states had to roll back on uh, the relaxation of, of the lockdown. Um, the jobless data uh, for this week, actually, uh, should give us a sense of whether uh, the resumption of lockdown is already having a significant impact on rehiring. It was already the case in last week's reading, but it's a very noisy indicator, and we would want to be sure uh, with two readings uh, that this is definitely uh, the new trend, uh, unfortunately, for the US labor market. If you want to know the position of Philip Lane, the chief economist of the ECB, on yield control and its adaptability to the European Union, the link to the Macrocast newsletter is in the description of the episode. As discussed today, many uncertainties remain regarding the long-term recovery and the best strategies to stimulate it. This is a good reason to meet again next Monday. And in the meantime, have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.